This last week, we uh, had our Kid Jam uh, on Monday through Thursday night, and we haven't had a kids program, summer program like that uh, for several years. So it was awesome to gather together again with uh, kids and families and have a, a fun week together. Uh, we had over 50 volunteers show up uh, and invest in the lives of our kids, and uh, Kim, was so, Kim our, our children's leader, was just so encouraged by those who volunteered. Um, if you volunteered, would you just raise your hand if you volunteered at Kids Camp this last week. Yeah, we're so thankful for you. Yeah. So we just had a lot of fun with it. And um, one of the things the kids were doing, they were in two teams and they were competing like you do with kids. And they were bringing in uh, food supplies uh, to fill our tag bags out in the lobby. And uh, they were trying to bring in the most to earn points. And at the end of the week, the winning team uh, would be announced and they got a big prize. And so Thursday night came and the treasure chest was brought up onto the stage and opened and the prize was lifted up and it was a golden plunger. I was like, well... <laughs> All right, that's fitting for childhood, I guess. But uh, So we, we just had a great week together. Those tag bags are just a great way. I don't know if you're aware of them. Take and give bags are uh, at, the, at the lobby here and then down by the office doors. They're just bags of groceries that, that we're able to take to people in our lives that need some support or as people come into the church looking for help and sometimes just for ourselves and we need a, a help through the week, uh, we can pick up a tag bag and they've been available here for several years. In the last eight months, we've given out 350 tag bags as a church, which is really remarkable that we've been able to help that many people and uh, share that that love and that mercy with others. Uh, last week, I was pulling one, the last tag bag off the cart by the office door for someone who had called looking for help, and uh, they came by to pick up this tag bag. We gave them some, a gift card as well to get some other things. And, and I have to be honest with you, when I was pulling off that last tag bag, I had some thoughts going through my mind. Um, you know, why, why is it that we're down to zero on this cart? You know, where are the rest of the tag bags? And I had that little flash that flash thought that we sometimes have that's a little more judgmental, a little more condemning than helpful, and it went, it went through my head, and it was something like this. I just wish people would think more about others than they think about themselves. That like flashed through my mind in that moment as I was taking that last tag bag. And then the Spirit of God, as he often does, kind of poked at my heart a little bit, and I realized, well, I haven't filled a tag bag in like over a year, you know, so who am I? to think about others like they're not doing the job they should be doing when I'm not doing the good things I know I need to be doing. I'm not doing the good that God has called me to do. Does God ever bring conviction on you like that? Yes. You know, kind of poke you in the heart, um, wake you up and say, you know what, Nate, you're the problem. <laughs> Hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. Like as T. Swift sings, anyone want to sing along with me? <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes uh, Angela and I get into arguments Shocking, right? I know, yes. Uh, we get into arguments as well. We've got to work at loving each other just like we all have to do. And there's times when, when we're fighting and I, in the moment I'm thinking about what I need to do. I'm aware of what I should do. I know I need to say a, a certain word. I need to offer uh, an apology. Sometimes I just need to reach out and hug her. I know what I should do. But in the moment, I don't do it. I, I hold back. It's like, it's like I'm savoring the, the simmering and stewing that she's going through. I'm like, I'm like marinating in the harshness that she's facing. And I withhold the kindness and the care that she deserves. The same kindness and care that, that I'm looking for as well. Why do we do this? 
Why, why do we hold back the good things we know we should do? Especially when it's someone that we love, someone that we're connected to, someone who we've committed our lives to. Why do we hold back on those promises? And this is the struggle we see the people of God facing in Judges chapter 3, in the book of Judges. There's this way of life that they are aware of. Everyday choices, how they're supposed to live, who they're supposed to worship, and, and how they're to treat others. And, and instead of doing what they know is right in the eyes of God... They continue to choose to do what's right in their own eyes, what they feel like doing. They look at the situation and they say, well, I know this is what God would have me do, but I think this looks like a better option. And they continue to choose that over and over again. Why, does, why is it that we, we do this as well? The first two chapters of the book of Judges set the stage for the rest of the book. And last week, Pastor Jessica did a great job introducing us to the, the cycle that we see in the book of Judges. And we're going to review that in just a minute. Uh, the book is named after these leaders that God would raise up among the people. And this is uh, about 4,000 years ago, a long time ago. Uh, the, these leaders that he would raise up, and they called them judges. Not that they would judge the people, but they would lead the people and, and help them find what was right in the midst of all the wrongs. Uh, maybe you've heard of some of the judges. Anyone ever heard of Samson, the judge Samson, super strong guy? Uh, maybe you've heard of uh, Deborah. Anyone heard of Deborah? Any of those? How about Gideon? Have you heard of Gideon? Okay, some. How about Othniel? For her, Othniel? Not quite as many hands there for Othniel. Not, not as popular as a name today. We're going to look at his story this morning in Judges chapter 3. What's interesting about Othniel is, is he's the greatest judge of all of them. He, the, the writer has nothing bad to say about this first judge that we read about. He's just highlighted as the one who did it right. There's nothing he did negatively. In fact, Samson, who many of us are aware of, Samson, we've heard his name before, he's the worst judge of them all. He's, he's the last one and the worst one. But we've uh, not heard of the best one that we're going to talk about this morning. So I want to do a quick little review of this intro to the book of Judges. And we're going to use a video from the Bible Project. Some of you have maybe heard of the Bible Project. It's an online resource. They have a video um, synopsis of, of every book of the Bible. And they have diagrams that sort of lay out the books that are very helpful. In fact, out in the lobby, there's two boards. Maybe you've seen them over the last few weeks that have the diagram of the book of Judges. And that's from the Bible Project. One thing you might want to think about doing as you leave this morning, maybe take your phone and, and snap a picture of that diagram to keep for the summer. And I, I want to challenge you at some point this summer to read the book of Judges and allow that diagram to help you kind of walk through the book. You could do it in about an hour, uh, or you could take a little bit each day and do it over the course of a week or something like that. But the, allow uh, the book, you know, read the book and allow God to use it to help draw you closer to him. But the Bible Project's a great resource. So we've edited the whole Judges video down to just about two minutes, just the first two chapters uh, to kind of catch us up with it uh, for this morning. So would you watch this video with me? The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the Promised Land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. 
But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshiping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of the overview, kind of how uh, this book, how we get into this book. Now, we understand that God called Abraham and his family to be different in the world. He called them and invested himself in them to, to, that they could be a blessing to all the nations, to be a holy people. And uh, this doesn't happen. Instead, they fall into this painful cycle of brokenness, suffering, crying out for help, being saved, and then back to brokenness again. This, and you saw in the video that downward spiral that we see happening in the book of, of Judges. And it makes me think about uh, those who follow Jesus today, those of us in the church, that we're called to be hope and light and grace in our community, in our neighborhood. We're supposed to be those who love well, right? That's, uh, that's what Jesus called us to. And yet when many people think about Christians in our country today, that is not the first thoughts they have about those who identify as followers of Jesus. It sort of speaks to us today. Like, wh why are we not known as we're supposed to be known? And that's what Israel was facing as well. So let's get into this story this morning found in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. If you've got a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open up. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. Open up your, your Bible app on your phone, and we're going to learn about this first judge, Oth Othniel. And uh, we read about him actually in chapter 1 the first time, and we're introduced to him because he marries the daughter of Caleb. And Caleb was one of the few leaders that made it all the way through the wandering in the wilderness into the promised land. There was Joshua and Caleb. Uh, years before, the people of, of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They were 400 years. They were enslaved. And Moses comes and brings them out of slavery. And there's millions of them, millions, men, women, children, that, that walk through the wilderness towards the promised land. And now, 50 years later, all of those have died, and, and Caleb is the last one. He's the last one from the original group that came out of Egypt. So he's legendary among the people. 
And uh, Othanel is, is able to come into this community. He's not a Jewish person, but he's welcomed into the community, and he wins the, the hand of Caleb's daughter as his wife. And right away, we're, we're kind of hit that this first judge is not what we were expecting. He's somewhat unexpected because he's not Jewish, and he comes in from outside the community, and he begins to lead the people as we read this passage. So uh, let's look at verse 7 of chapter 3, and just follow along while I read uh, this short story about Othniel. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashereths. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Reshatine, king of Aram Naharaim, and to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. And the Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishatine, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So it's just a short story. We're not going to, the next judge we see here is Ehud, and you can read his story later. But what we see in this first judge is this cycle described in the, the clearest way. The whole rest of the book, it's, it's, it happens over and over again, but it's never as clear as it is in Othniel's story. Israel did what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. God gives them into the hands of an outside nation. Israel is subje subjected to hardship and suffering by this outside nation, and the people eventually cry out to God for help. And he raises up a deliverer, a judge, who leads the people to freedom and out from underneath the hand of their oppressors, and there is peace in the land. And there's always peace in the land until that judge dies. And then a whole generation passes away, and a new generation comes up who does not respond to God, does not, does evil in the eyes of the Lord. So in verse 7 there, we're introduced to this idea of doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? What was the evil that they were doing? We see right in verse 7 there, it says they forgot God and they served fake gods. They served idols, no gods. And Jessica mentioned this last week and did that great image of the wedding dress and this covenant relationship we've, we've uh, in, entered into with God. And yet how we turn away from that promise, that covenant relationship, how we break it, how we, uh, as it says in the passage here, we forget God, forget what it means to walk with him. Uh, we, we get distracted, our lives get busy, and we move away. One of the things we want to th talk about is what does it mean to forget God? What does that really, what does it mean to remember and to forget God? And, and it, it, does God ever forget things? One of the things we see in the Old Testament is when the writer writes about forgetting and remembering, they're often not talking about like actually forgetting or actually, there's a different kind of tone to it because he says in Psalm 25, David writes about God and he says, Lord, remember your mercy and love that you have shown since long ago. And then he says, do not remember the sins and wrong things I did when I was young. But remember to love me always because you are good, Lord. Now, obviously, David knew that God doesn't forget things. God is all-knowing, all-powerful. He doesn't need reminders on his calendar. He doesn't have to set alarms to make sure he shows up for the meetings and, you know, on his, on his calendar. But so when David writes this, what is he talking about? What is he saying to God when he says, remember or don't remember? Or what he's asking of God, he's saying, God, take action or don't take action in these different areas. Lord, act on your mercy and grace. When he says, Lord, remember your love and your grace, he's saying, act on it. Move toward me because of that. 
Lord, don't act on the wrong things I did when I was young. When he says, don't remember, he's saying, don't let that affect how we interact, how you lead me, God. Lord, act on your goodness. So in Judges 3, 7 says that the people forgot the Lord their God. It's not that they actually forgot God. They just stopped acting on what they knew to be true. They stopped responding to the truth of who God is and who he called them to be, the, the justice he invited them to live into with their lives. They knew what God was asking of them. They were aware of the life that would honor him, the kind of steps he would have them take. It just wasn't, wasn't real to them. It didn't capture their hearts. It didn't change how they thought about themselves or others. I think about how many times my dad would ask me to take out the trash, but then I would forget to take the trash out. Or he'd say, have you mowed the lawn? I'd say, oh, I forgot to mow the lawn. Or he'd say, stop hitting your sister. And I would forget, you know, to stop hitting my <laughs> sister. You know, I, I really didn't forget those things. I just didn't care enough about what my dad was saying to let it change how I was operating in my world as an eighth grader at the time, right? The way of God was no longer real to the Israelite people. Just nice thoughts up on their living room wall on the frames. God's way for their life was reduced to a five-second scripture that would pop up on their cell phones in the morning and they would swipe out of the way and then go on with their normal day. Like God had nothing to say to them. God loved them enough to fight for them and to say, this is not what I want for you. This is not what I created you for. This is not what I've called you to. And so he brought difficulty. He allowed hardship and suffering so that they would pay attention again, that they would wake up to what they knew to be true. His great hope was that they would find life, full life, new life. So God sends Kushan, Russia time. What a weird name. And the name in the Hebrew, it means dark and doubly wicked. So it's not the name his mama gave him, all right? We know that much. <laughs> this, was, this was the name the Israelites gave him. And it represents that he was, he was the worst of the worst. He, was, he brought evil and brokenness and sin and hate. He descended on the people of God. And he's from an area called Aram, which was north of Canaan. It was, he, he traveled the furthest of all the oppressors in the book of Judges. This guy came the furthest to oppress the people of Israel. He traveled the long distance to bring hardship on them. And the text here says that God sells them into his hands. Sells, sells them. That's an interesting term. Verse 7, we're told that they were already working for fake gods, Baal and Asherah. They, were already, they had already sold themselves over to the spiritual darkness of the people in the land. And so God simply allows the physical darkness to come as well, sells them into this hardship, hoping that they will turn and, and, and come back to him. Tim Keller wrote a book about the book of Judges, a book we're kind of using this summer as we go through this book together. And here's what Tim says about this section. He says, God sends the Israelites suffering not simply to pay them back. He doesn't want to just pay them back. He, he wants to redeem them. He doesn't want to pay them back. He wants to actually pay for them, redeem them, buy them back. And he still does this for his people. This is God's love for us. He allows hardships, not because he's upset with us, but so that he can call us back to himself, that we can return to him and, and see his love and his grace around us because he believes in us and he knows that we can be transformed. It's one of the reasons we sometimes go through hard things in life. Not, not every time, but sometimes that's why. A little quick note here, as I was thinking about this book and the hardship and the suffering that the people have to go through, I began to wonder, well, is this the only way? Is this the only way that we can grow in our faith? Is this the only way that we can be brought back to God? Do we have to go through suffering and hardship every time? And of course, the answer is no. There's, there are other options. 
Jesus once said these words. He said, all who lift themselves up will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be lifted up. Instead of pain and hardship, instead of being humbled, we can choose instead to humble ourselves. And Jesus said, then we will be lifted up. We will, we will grow up in our faith if we will humble ourselves. So how do, you, how do you humble yourself? How do you do that? Well, first, one of the ways to humble yourself is to make less of yourself and more of others. You want to learn how to humble yourself, you need to make less of yourself and make more of others. Now, some have picked up on a little phrase I'll often say when I get up to talk, and the staff will give me a hard time about this at church, but I'll often say something like, my name's Nate, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, the staff will give me a hard time, you're one of the pastors here, you know, what are you talking about? What, what I'm doing when I do, I do that intentionally because I'm humbling myself. I'm putting myself in the right context. I'm placing myself in the right position in this church community because I am not the pastor here. I am a pastor here. And we have pastors here that we pay to be part of our community, and we have others who volunteer as pastors here. Many of you are called and gifted as pastors. You are, you are pastoring your family. You are pastoring your small group. Uh, you might help out with the students, middle school and high school kids, and you're pastoring them. Some of you are pastoring those who are going through illness or loss in their life. There are a lot of pastors in this room. So do you want to humble yourself? Then put yourself in the right place in your mind and in, in your community. You are called and gifted and unique and deeply loved by God. That is true about you. And you are also part of millions of people around the world who are in his kingdom and he is working through and using. The kingdom of God does not depend on you alone. It depends on what God is doing. So if we can humble ourselves, put ourselves in the right place, that's one of the ways to do that. Second, if you want to humble yourself, then you place yourself under God's authority. You live like a person who is accountable to someone greater than yourself. Your life is not your own. You have been bought back. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased at a price. And so you've been invited to live in a certain way. And so place yourself under the authority of God. Now, we get tripped, tripped up by authority. Human authority can get twisted and unhealthy so easily. I mean, we've all watched the documentaries, you know, about things when they go sideways under human authority. But, but God's authority is good and faithful and always for our best. So place yourself under God and allow him to guide you. Allow him to inform how you see yourself, how you understand your own identity. Instead of saying, you know, I'm just going to do what I think is right in my own eyes. You say, no, I am accountable to God. I'm going to place myself. I'm going to humble myself and place myself under his authority. Humbling yourself doesn't make any kind of guarantees that you won't face hardship. In fact, Jesus once said, in this life you will have trouble. But suffering is not the only way to experience God's work in your life. That's the good news. So choose to humble yourself with me. In Judges 3, though, we see the people, they, they, they are facing suffering. They are facing hardship. And they do it for eight years. Eight years, they get up each day, each week, wondering if today they're going to be, if, is it going to be hard again today? For eight years, they could have cried out, but they wait eight years. And finally, eventually, it's not like they remember God, but they decide to act on what they know about God. And they cry out, God, help us. This is the first step towards that new life, that first step towards rescue. Help us cry out and ask God to respond. 
A few hundred years later, one of Israel's kings would continue this practice of crying out. King David was running for his life. He was being chased down by his enemies, and he cried out to God in Psalm 142. Here's what he wrote. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you, God, who watch over my way and the path where I walk, where people have hidden a snare for me. And then would you read this next line with me? It's up on the screen there, that first three lines there. Read this with me. Look and see. There is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. Have you ever, you ever felt that way? Have you ever found yourself in a place where it felt like nobody else was alongside you, that you were all alone? And so David, he's, he's right there with you. He says, but I cry out to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge. So he goes from saying, I have no refuge. And he says, but God is my refuge. So he knows. He's reminding himself. He's choosing to remind himself and to act on what he knows. You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison that I might praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. When's the last time you cried out to God and asked him to show up, to remind you of what was true, to be real in your life? Have you ever felt like you were in that place where no one was concerned for you? That loneliness, that crushing feeling in your life. And this is why, this is why we gather together. That's why we gather together on Sundays. That's why we show up online to watch. It's why we come around one another to remind each other, to remind each other that God is here. We cry out to him and he is the one who responds. So the people cry out and God raises up Othniel to deliver them. Othi, I like Othi. Othi to the rescue. There's something interesting in the passage here, uh, verses 7 through 11. Uh, it's in the Hebrew language. We don't see it as much in the English, but there's, there's a kind of a bookend going on in a central moment in this passage. And so we're introduced to this evil king at the beginning, and then he's named again at the end. We're introduced to Othniel, and then right in the middle, there's eight lines, and then this middle phrase, and then eight more lines. And the middle phrase that is in there is, he saved them, in verse 9. He saved them. That's the central phrase in this, this part of the story. And it's written in the original language in such a way that, that you're not sure who the he is. He saved them. Who's the he? Is it God or is it Othniel? Is it the creator God or is it the judge that he raised up? And for the Hebrew people, as they read it, they know what the answer is. It's, it's both of them. It's both and. Othniel empowered by God. God choosing to work through his chosen leader. God used Othniel and Othniel trusted God to work through him takes both at the same time. It reminds me of us as followers of Jesus. Again, one of Jesus' closest friends, John, would write in the New Testament about us, and here's what he said. Suppose we say that we share life with God but still walk in darkness. Then we're lying, and we're not living by the truth. But suppose we walk in the light as he is in the light. Then we share life with one another. There is this partnership. There is this connection with the Spirit of God in us working through us. When we share life with God, we are light just like he is light. So we do it together. When you surrender yourself to Jesus and receive new life from him, you enter into this partnership with God, a relationship of trust and action. There's a spiritual power that is poured into your life when you become a follower of Jesus. And we don't, we don't deserve it, but it's given to us by God's grace. So God and Othniel deliver the people 
And uh, they deliver them by going to war, it says. They, they get into war again, right? This is the, one of the themes in the book of Judges that is challenging for us. Why is it war? Why is it violence? And God allows it, and he does even more than allow it. He actually uses it. He uses it to, to help the people grow in their ability to learn how to battle, how to fight. We see this right in, in chapter 3, right at the beginning, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 3. Here's what it says. There are, these are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. And God did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. God allowed these battles to come so that they could learn how to fight, how to stand. And for us today, I mean, life is sometimes a battle. Sometimes it feels like we're in a fight. Some of you have, have experienced those battles in the relationships in your life, at work or at school, sometimes even just inside yourself, a, a battle going on inside of you. And the good news of the New Testament is that we no longer fight against people. We don't go to war against other nations as followers of Jesus. In the New Testament, it's clear that we don't fight people, we fight spiritual realities. Paul wrote to his friends in Ephesus, he said this, our fight is not against people on earth, but against the rulers and authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, against the spiritual power, powers of evil in the heavenly world. We don't fight against people. We don't tear people down. We don't stand in judgment over them. We do not condemn them. That is not what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. But we do fight. There is a battle that we engage in, a spiritual battle, and it has an influence in our lives, our day-to-day -day lives. There are spiritual battles that affect how we see ourselves, how we understand our identity, changes the dynamics of our relationships around us, how we see others. There's a, there are battles that we should fight, spiritual battles to help us see others in different ways. Yesterday, I was at the Juneteenth celebration at Harmon Park, this national celebration that remembers that how we see others can change that there can be movement in our lives. People used to look at others with different skin tone and think less of them. They saw them simply as property, saw them as slave. Thank God that that has changed over the years, that that mentality is changing, that the laws in our society has, have, have moved beyond that to loving and welcoming all. Now, Dr. King talked about a dream that he had, and we've had, we're not yet there, you know, we haven't realized that dream fully, but we are changing and we can stand up for people around us and seek the good of all people. That's what justice is all about. We can fight against things that are not just in this world. And again, it's not physically fighting. It's spiritually fighting. It's prayer. It's talking. It's in relationship. It's learning. It's expanding how we see others. This is what justice is all about. But we're still, we're still tempted to not live into that reality. We all face that temptation towards sinful choices or holding back on actions that we know we should do, the good we should do to help others. And we have to allow God to transform us and, and choose to move in the ways that he's called us to. It's a real fight. It's a real fight. When we withhold the good that we should do and we refuse to act in the ways that, that we know God has called us to, it's, it's a battle, and we can prepare for those battles. We can get ready for them. Sometimes they'll pop up in surprising ways, but we can be ready for them. Peter wrote in his letter in the New Testament about this, and he said these words, God has also given us very great and valuable promises. God did this so that you could share in his nature. He also did it so you could escape from the evil in this world. That evil is caused by sinful longings. So you should try very hard to add goodness to your faith. To goodness, add knowledge. To knowledge, add the ability to control yourselves. To the ability to control yourselves, add the strength to keep going. 
And to the strength to keep going, add godliness. And to godliness, add kindness to others. And to kindness, add love. See, when we act on what we know, when we remember who God is, who Jesus is, and we do more than just remember, but we take action, we can see that, that we're given God's very nature. That's what Peter says. You can experience God's nature in your own life. He can transform your character when you lay your life down and you take hold of that forgiveness that Jesus came to give you and you follow his way of life. The power and presence and the very nature of God comes upon you and can fill you and transform your heart and your mind. You can live in a new way. We remember grace. We cry out for mercy. We act with hope and joy. We don't follow the same pattern we see in the book of Judges, this cycle, this downward spiral. Jesus invites us off of that to get us unstuck. You know, the people of God, they were stuck on that cycle throughout the whole book of Judges. And Jesus came to open up a way of life outside of that downward spiral. Instead of doing what we think is right in our own eyes, we say, God, what is it you would have us do? We want to live into who you are and your very character will fill us and empower us that we might live differently, that we can glorify him, that we can shine out in our community and bring truth and love and grace to those around us. This is what God has created us for. This is the life, the new life he has given to us. And we need to live into it. So let's ask him to help us do that. Will you, will you pray with me about this? I want to invite the worship team to come up and let's pray together as they come to lead us in some, some more songs together. But let's pray. Will you talk to God with me? Father, thank you for the stories in the book of Judges, how they call us to attention, how they warn us of, of this, this deadly cycle, this deadly spiral that we can get stuck in, of, of turning to you and then turning away and then facing the consequences of poor choices and actions, of going through hardship and suffering being reminded of who you are and calling out to you and then you, you bring us back to yourself again or we've wandered away and you find us and you bring us back and then after a season we start to wander away again. Lord, this is not what you created us for. You have called us your very own. You have poured your spirit into us. Father, would you help us in this battle to stand strong in what we know. To remember you and to act on what we know is true and right and good. Would you help us to humble ourselves, to place ourselves under your authority, Father God, because you are good and faithful. You're a father we can trust. And we pray that you would help us live in that way. Lord, help us to bring light and love to those around us, to those in our family in our neighborhood, at school, at work. Wherever we encounter people, Lord, would you help us bring light and hope, joy and peace, truth and strength, that your kingdom might expand, that we might be able to, to point people to the love and grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The very nature of God has been poured into our lives. That goodness he shares with you, that you can go and be light and love to those around you. I want to encourage you to do that today, this week. I want to invite our prayer volunteers to come up, and uh, there are volunteers here every Sunday to pray with you and lift you up and encourage you, things in your life that you'd like someone to pray with you about. Uh, take advantage of that space, this time.
to sit before God with a friend and, and, and pray together. If you'll take your connection cards, any offering, uh, tithe you have this morning, you can drop those in the joy boxes in the back. That's right. We celebrate generosity. You are generous people. Go and, and live out this generous love that God has poured into your life. Go and see him working around you. Go and be loved. And we'll see you next Sunday. Go with God. Amen.